Well, open your Bibles to Mark's gospel once again. And for those of us, for those of you who are uh, new or maybe even visiting for the first time with us, we've been studying the gospel of Mark. It's the second book uh, in the New Testament. And if you're using one of the uh, gospel hope Bibles there in the, the seat rack in front of you, you'll find this particular portion of Scripture on page 837. Mark was not one of the disciples who walked with Jesus, one of the twelve, as we sometimes say, but it seems that he was closely associated. And there are other things that in the course of this gospel we'll have an opportunity to address that, that, say, that indicate he was an eyewitness to the life of Christ. And in this particular section that began in the opening verses of chapter 2 and actually runs into chapter 3, there are actually five different stories that Mark puts together making a significant illustration of truth that sits in this particular passage, kind of like bookends. And he does it actually through five particular questions. Now, four of these questions are questions that people come to Jesus with, and they ask him things, as in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then as we looked at uh, verses 14 and following last week, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And, And both of these things are problematic for some of the people in Jesus' community that day. Because he's doing things and saying things that are outside the boundaries of their little religious box. And all of us have a religious box, don't we? And so you know how troubling it is sometimes when you hear things or see things that are outside of your box. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. And then today we're going to come to the third question, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It's another really important question. And the fourth question, which we won't get to today, we'll save it for next week, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But the fifth question that appears in chapter 3 is actually a question that Jesus puts to the religious leaders in particular in the community that he is serving, and we'll come to that in time. Now, look at verses 2 and 28 in Mark 2. Again, just by way of introduction, I want you to see something really important here. We covered this a few weeks ago. It was actually part of of Matt's message on Jesus healing the paralytic and forgiving sins. And in verse 10, Jesus actually says that you may know that, and he uses a really important title, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The Son of Man. Now look at verse 28. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, this is, this is particularly important for us uh, to, to just pay attention to this very special title that Jesus is using. Jesus is the Son of Man, and He's using this title intentionally, strategically, That title goes all the way back to the Old Testament where it is first given to us through a prophecy of Daniel, and there the title has reference to that specially selected one by God Almighty who has authority to judge the world, not just in a particular moment, but who judges all the people in all the ages. And that is a marvelous passage that reveals this Son of Man as one who possesses all authority. 
Every kingdom on earth is his. Every nation is his. All glory belongs to him. We sang of some of those very truths this morning. So the son of man is a significant title. Now, in Mark's gospel, as it's used here in chapter 2, it has clear and specific reference to his authority. Verse 10, his authority to forgive sins. Verse 28, his authority to supersede the Sabbath, which if you know anything about the, the, the Jewish uh, religion as it was being practiced was a really big deal. And again, we'll come to the full explanation of that story in a few more weeks. And there's a third use in gospels in Mark's gospel that we need to just be aware of now. And again, we'll come to it in time. But the Son of Man is a title that has specific reference to the future suffering of Jesus, suffering for sin, and the resurrection from the dead. I mean, he is going to establish his authority in a, in a way that many people could not even begin to expect. And you can see some of the references that are coming in chapters 8, 9, 10, and beyond. So this title appears twice in this chapter, and it has to do with the authority he possesses. And it's not authority delegated from God to him. It is actually authority he demonstrates as God. He is God. And sometimes people consider the life and teachings of Jesus and think, well, he certainly was a great religious prophet or teacher. But, you know, that's not how he presented himself as just a prophet, as if he would stand in the long line of other religious leaders or great philosophers from humanity. He over and over and over again says or teaches or demonstrates, I am God, and he calls us to believe that he is God. Now that's really important because even the story that we're about to see has to be understood and interpreted and then even applied in the context that this is God at work. This is God who is speaking. This is God who is reorienting us. And sometimes he's tearing things down that we feel really comfortable about and he's calling us to attempt things or believe things that we may not even considered before, but he does it with the authority of God on earth. So the Son of Man... It's a really important title for us. Now let's look at the text, and you follow along as I read through this. John or Mark 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed." And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, there are several things in that passage that are unknown to us culturally, intriguing, if not odd, and we'll make sense of them in time, and I think everybody will say, oh, okay, I see what he was saying. Well, let's go back to verse 18 and begin to work our way through the passage. 
John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? There's a little cultural context that's really important for us to understand, because two different groups are described here as fasting. And one group we've already come to see is, is not really a group that most of us would want to be associated with. And even today, the term Pharisee can sometimes be a pejorative term if you want to insult somebody or, or you know, kind of try to temper their religious piety. You might say to them, you know, quit acting like a Pharisee, which means stop acting like a self-righteous, proud, boastful person, Right? But on the other hand, John the Baptist, who that's the John that's being described here, he has disciples, and John's a good guy. I mean, he's the one specially selected by God to prepare the way for his son's ministry, right? He's the one that came out of the wilderness crying, just like Isaiah had prophesied. And he has disciples who go with him. So it can't all be bad that some groups fast. Well, culturally speaking, fasting had... Uh, several different motivations and reasons behind it. And when you study a little bit about John's disciples, you find that they were fasting as part of their expectation of judgment. In expectation of Messiah's ministry coming, many of the Old Testament prophecies had said he will come, and as John preached in another place, his winnowing fork will be in his hand. Well, that's, a, that's an agricultural uh, illusion there that, you know, he's, he's to put it in modern day, um, you know, he's going to drive a big combine through, through this field and just cut it down. It's a sign of judgment. And they knew that these were prophecies that God had given, and that moved them to personal repentance. It moved them to mourn over the cultural sin that they were witnessing. And so fasting for them was an expression of this expectation of judgment. Now, for the Pharisees, there was a different motivation. The, the three main pillars of Jewish religion that were in practice in that particular day were prayer, almsgiving, and fasting, in and of themselves really good things. And the Pharisees normally fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, according to some of the writings that we have from that particular time period. And although that was not biblically required of them, it was something that over time had developed where they believed firmly that really committed religious uh, people would fast on Monday and Thursday. As a little side point, the only fasting that God ever required from the Old Testament was for the Day of Atonement. That's the only commanded fast. Other seasons where it was permitted uh, and encouraged even, there are other examples from the Old Testament where some, because of fear or significant decisions that were before them, would fast and pray, but this is the only requirement that you would find in the Old Testament. But for the Pharisees, it was a prerequisite of religious commitment and an act of piety. And so they had elevated this practice to a place where it actually was unhealthy. And that brings us to the problem with fasting. By Jesus' day, one author writes, the original fervor and vitality of Phariseeism had calcified into a formalism at myriad points of practice and observance in which, and here's the quote that I, or the portion of it I have for you on the screen, conformity to legal prescriptions replaced the disposition of the heart, thus distorting the true intent of the law. You catching that? Let me, let me state that a little different way. 
So the vehicle that God had designed to get people from one point to another point became the point. It'd be like you bowing down in your driveway to worship your car. It's a good gift that God gives us. I'm so thankful for motorized transportation. Walking to church has been done. I'm glad I'm not called to that era, right? But if I went out in my driveway this morning before coming over here and I began to, to pray or devote myself you know, to that old Yukon, you, you guys would, for starters, you'd be looking for another pastor to replace my position on this team, right? And you'd think he's lost his mind. Well, that's, that's a little bit of what was taking place. And so we continue. The Pharisees wove an increasingly intricate web of regulations around the, the Torah, which was their, their body of, of teaching that they followed. And again, on this portion on the screen for you, whose purpose may have been to honor Torah, the teachings, but whose effect was a confining and even crushing burden on human existence. You know, if you've lived under a highly burdensome religious system at any point in your lifetime, then you know some of what was taking place in Israel at that time. It's the kind of thing where you say, you know, nothing I do is ever good enough. I mean, I try my best, but I'm always falling short. Try to read my Bible, try, try to devote myself to knowing more about God, and I feel like I, I'm never measuring up. Try to pray, but I, I don't do that well. I try to be faithful in, in ministry or service or giving and, and all of these things, and yet, and yet you just feel this increasing weight on your soul as you work and work and work and work, and it never seems like enough. And that's exactly what so many people in Israel were living with in that day, and that's part of what Jesus came to just destroy it. Because the life he has called us to is a life that begins and ends in him. So the people are struggling to make sense of why Jesus' disciples don't fast. And for some of them, they they can only make one conclusion. No fasting, no piety. Your disciples don't fast, they can't be really serious about their relationship with God. The focus of fasting uh, shifts a little bit. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, isn't it interesting that he answers their question with a question? And he does that because he's got to adjust their thinking, radically so. Now, let's talk for just a moment the cultural context of a wedding celebration in Israel. And there were several elements that are important for us to to know. One Bible scholar writes, a wedding celebration in a Jewish village normally lasted seven days for a virgin bride or three days for a remarried widow. Friends and guests had no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities. Wouldn't you like that? I mean, the expectation, culturally speaking, you got invited to a wedding, it's a week off work. Every one of us would be going, woo-hoo. Yeah, seven days, no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities. And there was an abundance of food and wine as well as song and dance and fun, both in the house and on the street. Now listen, look at this next one. Even rabbis were expected to desist from Torah instruction 
and join the celebration with their students. Now that's significant because that meant at least for that wedding celebration on Monday and Thursday, guess what? Rabbis didn't have to fast. Eat up, drink up, dance your feet off. There's a wedding and there's a bridegroom and a bride and a family. It's a celebration. No one fasts at a wedding celebration. That's what Jesus is stating. Now, it's, it becomes evident as you're looking at this that Jesus is using this point to defend the disciples, right? So they're the characters in this little brief question and story, if you even want to put it that way. If the disciples compare to the wedding guests, because no guests fast at, at, at a wedding celebration, the disciples don't fast, well, who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus. He's the central figure. His point is that these disciples, because they're in my presence, they're not fasting any more than wedding guests who are in the presence of a bridegroom would fast. It's just not appropriate. So if the disciples are not fasting, what are they celebrating? Well, think of it in the context of Mark's gospel. It's his authority over demons. It's his power to heal leprosy and paralysis and every other kind of disease that has been brought to him so far. It's his life-giving preaching and teaching, his authority to forgive our sins, his grace to befriend sinners. These are stunning developments in this cultural that's very closed and very ordered, and and the religious teachers dominate the the lives and households and daily life of, of all of these people. And here Jesus is in the middle of it, kind of blowing it all up. It's not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. Another author writes, through his person and ministry, God was at work bringing wholeness to the broken and forgiveness to the wayward. This is epitomized in his ministry to the sick and his table fellowship with the sinners. Consequently, the wedding celebration with his expression of joy represented the presence of the new day of God's redemptive activity in the person and ministry of Jesus. This is the stuff that so many people had been longing for, waiting for, hoping and praying and expecting, and it's come. Jesus then says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus is making a reference, somewhat dim, but still a reference to his coming death and burial, to his resurrection and ascension. We understand this as people of God. There are days where we long for the presence of Christ, and we almost feel like we cannot find him. We just want to be with him. Jesus, either come back for us or take me there. just want to be with you. I think of the closing words that the apostle John wrote in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 verse 20. Jesus is first described as testifying to these things, John says. And here's the testimony, surely I am coming soon. And then John writes these words, amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. John was writing that 
from an island he had been exiled to. He had lived and walked with Jesus for those three years of ministry. Remember, John is the one who refers to himself all through his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. He never got over that love of Jesus. He'd experienced it firsthand, even reclining against his bosom on the night of Christ's betrayal. I know, again, culturally speaking, some of you guys would be like, eh, no, that's, that's not a guy thing. No, not in our culture, but it was legitimate there, and unfortunately, even in our day and age, some have tried to twist that into some kind of perverted love between men. It was not. It was just a demonstration of this whole and healthy and spiritual love and affection that flowed first from Christ to John, and then he responded just reciprocating. He's the disciple Jesus loves. And on that island, he pens these words, the last book of the Bible, and closes it out and says, oh, Lord Jesus, just come. And I suspect there were days in John's life after Jesus ascended where he just said, you know, I don't have much appetite for food. I just want Jesus. I think that's some of what Jesus is alluding to here. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. But then he goes on to say something else. And this is a little different for us. Now, some of you who have worked with fabrics and textiles would totally get this immediately. Others of us would have to be instructed or or do a little more research to fully understand it. But Jesus says, no one who sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, uh, if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, let's talk first of all about cloth and wine, and, or the, the new cloth on old cloth. And the, the point of it being unshrunk is that if, if you just show an, sew an unshrunk piece of cloth onto the old garment, then the next time it's washed and hung up to dry, uh, that new cloth actually shrinks and puts additional pressure on the old cloth, and it, and it would actually make a worse tear. Because what looks like it has patched Uh, the the garment that was torn actually becomes uh, something that threatens it. Everybody tracking? I I know most of us are like, I haven't patched clothing in the longest time. In my younger years, you know, boys, and and girls too to some extent, but I know for sure boys are really rough on the knees of their jeans, aren't they? And when I was growing up, my mom kept me in tough skins. You know, before the start of school, we'd go to Sears and we'd order a couple pairs of tough skins. And that was the toughest material she could find, but she also kept a supply of knee patches, iron-on-knee patches. Any of you have those? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And somewhere along the way, you know, enough recess uh, activity had gone on. The knees got thin and then frayed out, and then holes would appear, and my mom would pull out the patches, and she'd iron those in. And occasionally, it would be one of those moments where you really need to be on your way out the door to school But she looks at those things and says, I should have done that sooner. I cannot send you to school one more day with with holes in the knees of your tough skins. If only she had known how valuable those pants would be in this day and age, right? I tease my kids when they come home with brand new jeans that are all, you know, pay me to tear holes in your pants, you know? Come on. Let's go get the $13 Costco jeans and make them $50 jeans, right? Yeah, that never flies. Back on the 
on the message here, though. So she couldn't bear to send me to school with holes in my pants. But she never sewed new cloth into tough skins. So I don't have firsthand experience with this. But what Jesus is saying is you would never do this. It's actually destructive of the old. Now the wineskin thing kind of takes us a little different direction, doesn't it? But there's something else here that helps to illustrate this. And, and some of you would know this. Others of you may have never have heard this before. But as part of the winemaking process, they would actually use animal skins. And when those skins are new and fresh and the wine is new and fresh and, and the wine is placed into those skins, the fermentation pro- process would expand those skins. But there came a point where those old skins uh, became hardened and fragile and they could not expand uh, with new wine that was placed into them. So it was a pointless process to harvest those grapes, go through the process of of, of producing that juice that would ferment and then become wine and pour it into that old wineskin, the fermentation process would just absolutely rip that wineskin apart and both the skin and the wine would be lost. Now, what's Jesus' point? Well, the old garment and the old wineskin seem to have reference to the religious forms by which the people we're judging their spirituality. Jesus has no problem with prayer that's made in a humble and legitimate fashion. Prayers of faith, prayers of repentance, prayers of thanksgiving. There are many prayers that are legitimate, but prayer for show, that's a problem. Jesus never said, stop giving alms, but he did correct, a, correct the public showing that many were making as they gave their alms to be seen. And Jesus doesn't actually say stop fasting, but fasting again for show, as many of the Pharisees were doing, uh, and you could read some of the description in other gospels like Matthew 6, 7 and Matthew 23. There are a number of these practices where Jesus just says directly, you do it to be seen by others, and that's sin. Those are the forms and those self-righteous motives underneath them that Jesus is actually going after at this moment. And so the practice of those things for the Pharisees amounted to the establishment of their own righteousness before people and by their estimation even before God. The distortion of the religious form is illustrated by the fact that even though these people have Jesus in their midst, the value the forms of, they value the forms of worship more than they value the Son of Man who stands before them. It's really going to come into clear focus when in chapter 3, these people, many of them will actually begin plotting his death in order to protect the old cloth and old wineskins, if I can put it that way. In some respects, Jesus is the new wine. God's poured him out, and by his authoritative teaching, by his miraculous healings, by his exorcism of the, of the demons, by his befriending tax collectors and sinners, all that he is doing, I mean, he's just absolutely obliterating the old wineskin of a self-righteous system that has already been destroying the souls of these people. There's a powerful lesson in this for us. 
One author writes, Jesus' teaching and ministry is incompatible with the existing forms of religion and society. And it's being demonstrated in Mark's story by the conflicts with the representatives of the status quo, that is, the scribes and Pharisees. And those conflicts are going to escalate all the way to the place where they put him to death. Isn't that an astonishing thought? In John's gospel, he says, he came to his own, and his own received him not. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. You say, is it possible that religious forms could actually become so important, so valuable that they obscure Jesus? Yes, exactly. They have, and they do. We'd like to think that we would respond to Jesus in a way other than the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, no one here would like to to think that it might be in their heart to actually put Jesus to death. But I dare say some of us have old garments, old wineskins, maybe religious traditions that have been passed on to us from generations previous or just teachers we highly respected, and it's hard to turn those things loose because you feel so much of your identity is there, there's security that's there, there's a certain comfort that goes with those things, but if those things actually stand in the way of you and Jesus, of having a relationship with Him, those things are already destroying you. So as we come to this point in our study of Mark's gospel, I want to ask you to think this through with me. And rather than say, oh, those scribes and Pharisees, they were so self-righteous, and how could they, and why didn't they? And No, we need to actually ask of our own souls, what old garments or old wineskins are we holding on to that either prevent us from having a relationship with Jesus or hinder our relationship with Jesus? They're probably things whose purpose, in one respect, is to honor God. But the effect, like that of the Pharisees, as I quoted earlier, is a confining and crushing burden on your relationship with God. Let me try to illustrate this in some ways, and please know that I I have no intention of of singling anybody out or, or hurting anybody, but I was thinking through, there are, diff- there are all kinds of faith traditions that the, a group like this could pull together. For some of you, it might be praying the rosary. Prayer's a good thing, isn't it? But if those, if those beads are sacred to you, like they hold some special spiritual power, we've just identified an old garment an old wineskin. There's nothing in those beads. Even the, even the ritual prayers that you follow, well, well, I go in this order and I say these things and these are the special words. Oh, careful. Prayer is a good thing. Prayer made in the name of Jesus, that's the right thing. Prayer made to the God who created you and sent his son to redeem you, yes, that's, that's the right person to pray to. But if you think you have to have special words or special items in your hand 
you're missing it. Some people observe special days or seasons. I, I have no problem with, with those who want to observe a Passover meal. Some of you have done it. It has, it's giving you additional insight and understanding both to Old Testament saints and even the time of Christ, but as a church, we don't actually celebrate Passover. We celebrate the death of Jesus, His resurrection, but some people have made such a big deal out of a special deal like that that they feel like either they are more spiritual or other people are less spiritual because they don't observe a special day on the calendar or a special season like Lent. Sometimes we do it with our clothing, don't we? I've got my spiritual clothes and I've got my other clothes. You know, in my teenage years, there were some who condemned acid-washed denim. That was worldly dress. And so we, many of us, never had it and avoided it. As long as we weren't wearing it, felt like we were pretty spiritual. You know, there's another little fashion trend from my teenage, even in my college years, where guys would peg the bottom of their pants. And there was a time where that was considered worldly. You didn't have a heart for Jesus if you pegged your pants. Please laugh. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. I don't know that I ever bought that whole thing because I, I would peg my pants sometimes in the right places. Isn't that funny how we, we attach so much significance to something that a generation later is laughable? Now, there are times where certain clothing or jewelry or items out of culture are so clearly identified with wickedness and evil or immorality. We, we should avoid those things, okay, for a season. But those fads will pass, and, and we need to recognize when those trends or fads have passed, it, it's not perpetually evil, you know, because some pagan or some rebel against God, you know, pegged his pants. There was even, I was thinking about this, I, I trust this was the Lord bringing it to my mind, but there was even a season where I, there was a particular, uh, there was a particular Bible uh, that uh, many in, in my school recommended that we get. It was a wide margin Bible, a couple different options there, but even taking notes with one of those little micron or rapidograph pens, some of, there might be some of you remember that, and, and if you could fill up the margin of your Bible with all kinds of, of notes, you know, whether it be from commentaries or, you know, if you were this far, enough, far along in your training where you could actually, you know, go back to the original Hebrew or Greek and you could just fill up the margin. You know, that was a point of pride if you opened your Bible in a church service or a chapel or whatever and as it fell open, the margins were full. <laughs> Such a Pharisee. I almost brought one of those Bibles with me today so that you could see what I'm talking about. But then I thought, no, that will awaken that pride in me again. Like, see, I wrote in the margin of my Bible. Isn't that crazy? Now, if writing in the margin of your Bible helps you know Jesus and love him more, right away. I mean, just fill it up. But, but we don't, God never looks at the margins of your Bible and goes, uh, you got some free space that you need to fill up. <laughs> I thought you said you loved me. (laughs) 
special diets. I'm more spiritual because I don't eat. Or I'm more spiritual because I don't drink. And then we fill in the blank. Praise God. Jesus took care of this. We'll come to this in Mark's gospel. Chapter 7, verse 19. He declared all foods clean. Think about that. So eat your lucky charms. In moderation. All kinds of things. What, what old garments and old wineskins are you holding on to? Some of them are actually keeping you from Jesus in a relationship with him right now. And others of you have a relationship with Jesus and you, you have put your faith in him. But, but you're doing stuff, maybe even with the right motive, but it, it actually has morphed into something that is burdensome and ugly. Now here's the next step. And I want you to think of two or three specific steps. So when we say, how can you make sure Jesus remains the central focus of your heart and soul? I want you to think in terms of a couple of, of, of very simple, practical steps that would be helpful for you. You know, some of you, here we are, just a couple of weeks into the new year, and, and you've already gotten off track of your, the Bible reading plan you set up. Get back on it. You have to be in the Word. That is, a, that is a divinely created and appointed means of spiritual nourishment. I'm glad you're here. You should be in a place regularly where the word of God is preached and taught, but this is not enough food to sustain your soul day in and day out, week after week, month after month. You do need to pray. There are no secret prayers. There are no tricks to the prayer life. It's just you talking to God. And I do recommend praying with your Bible open because you also need to hear him speak and he speaks through his word. So you need to pray. But there's not a class of people here who really, I mean, we, we've learned some secrets and if you actually talk to the pastors in private, they'll tell you some tricks. No, there are none. You just gotta do it though. So I'm talking steps as practical as that, but some of it may also be that you say, you know what, I need to get rid of, and you eliminate it. Something that in and of itself is not evil, but because of what it stands for, symbolizes what it represents, it actually is in the way of Christ. You know what's interesting to me in this passage? is that Jesus is both the reason for feasting and he's also the reason for fasting. He's both. And there are moments in the Christian life where you say, I, I, I'm done with this world. So want to be with Jesus. No appetite or I'm even going to set aside food because I just want to express in a season of prayer, Jesus, I long to be with you. I want to know more of you. I want your presence and blessing. And so we give up food. And there are other moments too where you say, I have Jesus. I'm not with him yet, but he has forgiven my sins. He has granted to me an, an inheritance as Peter describes that's incorruptible, undefiled, that is unfading. I will be with him forever. This life is short, but because I have Jesus, my food and my drink and my wedding celebrations and birthday parties are incredible. Let's party. Let's celebrate. And so you need to feast, literally. 
because you have Jesus. Now, in just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I don't know that I've ever been struck by some of this tension, but I'm so glad to come to it today in the context of Mark 2 because I feel like the Lord's table, in some respects, it certainly is a spiritual feast. But I think it's also a kind of fast. And let me start with that side of it first. It's a little bit of a fast because the portions are small, physically speaking, right? And this doesn't count as lunch. It's barely an appetizer. And I know the symbolism is the more important thing here, but I was thinking, you know what? I think we can even partake of the Lord's table as a kind of of fast, expressing our longing for Jesus and say, oh, Lord Jesus, in comparison to you, this bread and, and this cup, what are they? And, and certainly because he is the bread of life, because he is the one who has shed his blood for the, the securing of our eternal life, at the same time we have everything we need right at this table because of what it represents. Now I much prefer to focus on the feasting because Jesus is everything we could long for. But even this table that we call the Lord's table is a reminder that there's a great banquet table being prepared in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'll guarantee you it won't be a little square of bread and a tiny little cup for you to drink. It will be a banquet like you have never known. So today we come to the Lord's table thankful, grateful, considering our relationship with him, enjoying what he has set before us to strengthen our faith and to put our lives in perspective because Jesus is the feast for our souls.